on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I, I, I'm really intent on exploring descent and rupture these days, not as the other of the masculine, but as a making forth of the masculine, as the masculine is always yet to come for me. Like the meaning of the masculine isn't there already. It's, it's diffracted. It's postponed indefinitely. It literally means that the meaning isn't there like an orb, you know, shining outside of uh, the sweltering heat or compost heap of, of bodies mangled into bodies. It's, it's being made in the moment. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate the space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm very excited to share my conversation today with Bio Akamalafe, an international speaker, poet, and activist in service of a radical paradigm shift in consciousness and culture. He is globally recognized for his unconventional, counterintuitive, and indigenous take on global crisis, civic action, and social change. Bio is also chief curator for the Emergence Network and the author of two books, including These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. I first crossed paths with Bio at the New Story Summit in Scotland back in 2014, and since then have followed his genre-bending wonderings about how things came to be as they are, often crafting his lectures and essays with surprising and beautiful associations of language and imagery. In this episode, we cover a range of topics, including understanding fatherhood as a community, the need to confront the monstrosities of masculinity, and the tender wound that may lie at the heart of the patriarchy. Enjoy. Welcome, Bio, to the show. Thank you, brother. Good to be here. Would you please begin by sharing a little of where you are in this moment? Hmm. How many ways to answer that question? <laughs> where I am? Well, physically, I'm in Chennai, India, uh, in a little part of the city called Egmore. And with my family, I'm so grateful to be with them. There's a long story about how that didn't almost happen, uh, you know. But in many other senses, I am where I'm at is in a place of peace and peace that is tensioned by the trauma and loss that is all around us, I think, at the moment. Um, but it's a homecoming that is creeping up on me, that is teaching me to wash dishes, change diapers, as if that was the last thing to do on the planet. Uh, that's where I'm at. Hmm. How has it been there with the with the lockdown? I understand, you know, India has been much more severe in its uh, response. I feel yeah, billion people. Well, the the gist of it is, it's not easy here. It's uh, 
it's probably easier to get people to issue a, a directive and say everyone go indoors, but it's much less, it's, it's a lot more difficult to get people to comply. And so because of the resilience of the culture and the manifoldness of India and India just been India, um, it's been difficult to see things come through in the ways that you would expect them to, especially under these circumstances. Um, it's weathering the storm. There isn't a lot of testing going on as much as you would expect. Um, but there you go. Uh, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned your family and how has it been to be with them during this time of, you know, quarantine? Uh, that is my single joy. Mm. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm so grateful to be with them. Um, I, I I just came off a call, like I said before we jumped on this one, that um, where I shared with the people inviting me to do something that I I've been flying for the past few years. I've been dwelling in airports. I've it, it got to a point where I was so used to uh, flying that uh, the people on board who recognize me and like hey, you're back again. I would literally <laughs> <laughs> I would literally fly into India and the next day fly out to Brazil and just time zone violations of the in, in, in infinite order. But I, I'm so grateful to be at home right now too, to be disciplined by their screaming, their demands on my person, by ideas and notions that I'm not the keeper of my time. I feel like I belong and this is just, this is just right. I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. I'd love to stay on this thread of fatherhood for a little bit. You know, I'm, I myself am a, a father to an 18 month old oh. named Oren, who is uh, getting more rambunctious and demanding but by the day. What's, by his, the day. what's his name or her name? Uh, his name is Oren. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe a similar story too, of being here and being at home. And, and um, this is the longest stretch that I have not traveled as well. And right. How it's uh, introduced, um, yeah, like a, a real, I don't know, impetus to to slow down, to be present, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and and for me, even with a a child, you know, I've heard with fathers in particular that fatherhood kind of comes on over time, that yeah. uh, it's not not necessarily an immediate, um, you know, reformat. Yeah, no. um, yeah, <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder with you, how was it? How was fatherhood coming on for you? I mean, first, did you always? know, you know, that you wanted to be a father and therefore uh, uh, fatherhood came on, you know, uh, or was it something that, you know, surprised you? Well, it's part of the technology, the cultural technology of the Yoruba people, where I come from in Nigeria, West Africa. It, it's, it's, it's rare to find a person who is not already getting ready to be a father or a mother. It's, it's there, you, you would hardly run into a person on the street saying, I don't intend to be a father or a mother, it's, it's almost seen as taboo um, because of the ways we see ourselves as holding the thread, not just for ancestry, but for progeny, for people that will come after us. So we're all in this web, this thick web together. Um, I wasn't, even though I prepared to be a father, I couldn't have prepared, no one could have prepared me for what it, <laughs> what it actually entailed, what it actually asked of me. Um, so, so much so that I, I'm finding it difficult at 
this point in time to see fatherhood as an ideal um, in the senses that maybe an American would speak about a more perfect union, you know, mm -hmm. like we're striving towards becoming the perfect nation state that would guarantee the American life for all people. Um, I, I don't know that father, I can subscribe any longer to the, to a notion of fatherhood that is just down the road. My fatherhood is thick with failure, mm. thick with um, other kinds of becomings, thick with voices that I thought I'd walked away from, thick with expectations that are not mine, motivations that I have no idea um, is part of my being and my processing and my psyche. Um, I think fatherhood is a community. Um, not just a stable archetype, it's a community. And what it means to be a father for me is to, is to speak with, is to confide in and to continue to, um, partner with the non-human and the human that is part of this assemblage that we rudely call fatherhood. Mm -hmm. I love that. Fatherhood is a community. Right. Yeah. Um, reading. I'll pull it up. I know it's it's only uh, audio this podcast, but I'm going to hold it up. Uh, <laughs> oh, you got one of those. Yeah. I recently uh, acquired a copy of your book, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences. Right. And one, I have not been able to get as far in as I wanted to before this call because uh, it uh -huh. arrived not too long ago. And two, I was really struck by, I mean, a theme or at least a, a constant uh, surprise with your writing, which is that it's so devastatingly beautiful thank you brother. consistently <laughs> yeah thank consistently you, and the book you know letters to my daughter is very clearly um at least from what i can tell so far aimed at or oriented to um speaking to her um mm. about about uh, your life about maybe all of the complex ways that have i don't know governed the moment to mm -hmm. to be for you to be together and you know i'm looking forward to reading the rest um and i'm curious to know Already at the you know in the in the opening, you speak about the significance of your own father, uh -huh. you know, and and his uh, early death, um, yeah. and and I love there's a line in there that you actually repeat a few times in the in a few of the paragraphs, which you say, um, "He's cool like that." <laughs> yes, you know, he's cool like that, <laughs> and yeah. and 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 I've heard you say, and I think in another podcast that he really um, was this I ideal. Uh, model of masculinity for you right right um, as as father is for many men and i would love for you just to to speak more about that um in particular what who he was to you then and how his death ended up launching you on so much of your adventure and your quest it feels well i feel daddy because that's what i called <laughs> daddy mm. daddy was uh um he continues to give today um mm. He was, uh, well, when I say he, he was an ideal um, model of the masculine for me, it, um, I don't mean he was perfect, obviously. You know? mm. um, there are many things that I, that I knew about my father or, or that we all knew about my father that, that we felt he should work on, you know. You know, this is something you have to work on. He, he had his shadows, obviously. Um, but at that time, as this young kid trying to navigate the burdens of masculinity, because being a man in Africa and 
I shouldn't say Africa. Africa is many worlds, many Africas. But in the part of Nigeria that I grew up in, being a man is is to be brought into this almost factory-like um, processing. Um, it's like masculinity is imposed on you. You have to be tough. You have to know how to hustle. Sometimes you have to have a deep voice. There's almost there are these expectations that come with being a man. And sometimes my father's expectations about how his boy was manning up, you know, didn't quite pan out the way he would have wanted it to be. I, I had sisters. I was very effeminate. Um, I spoke with this Nassau voice that I still, still speak with, uh, speak with today. Um, and I wasn't very manly. Um, uh, if, a if a rat came by, I would jump on the table and scream like my, <laughs> like a little girl, like my sister, and, um, which I will still probably do today. Uh, um, mm -hmm. so I wasn't very masculine. Um, I was quite comfortable with my lack of masculinity, but it was problematic for him. But he stood as this shining example of this archetype. He spoke different languages, Portuguese and, and French, and his own native language, which is a dialect of the Yoruba uh, generic language. He, um, he traveled far and wide. He was an ambassador. He had great hair. He was six foot plus. Um, he was very handsome. And I wouldn't count myself in any of those categories. I was just mm -hmm. his son. And, uh, so, so when he, when he died, it's like I lost my, my cookie cutter model. I, I, I not only lost my best friend, I lost my, I lost the, uh, template. Now, what do I do? It was like, it was like a meteorite. It was like something penetrating and dismantling and liquefying the soil that I was supposed to grow up in. Um, mm. and so I started to look for a different model and then I, I ran to Jesus. <laughs> mm. I ran to the next great model of masculinity. I ran to truth, formidable truth, absolute truth, unchanging truth, you know, the Christological, canonical, Calvinistic, Newtonian model of a universe that was unchanging, something in the image of my father. And then along the way, I think in some senses, because I think ancestors are still lively and generative. In some senses, my father gave me the gift or became the conditions of my recovery from that toxic notion of masculinity, from that toxic ideal of arrival. Um, and I'm still recovering in many senses. I'm still seeing, um, I'm still learning to unsee the abs and the good hair and all of that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I, but even more, even more importantly, I'm learning to unsee the binary with which I constructed the masculine at a distance, at a pathological distance from the feminine as something other than soft and loamy and gushy and microbial. Uh, I, I'm, I'm learning to dismantle those archetypes. I don't know where to take me, but there you go. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm struck by hearing a little of what you said, the, the ideas about what a man should be, you know, in, right. in, 
in the Yoruba, Yoruba, you said? Yoruba people? Yoruba people, yeah. Yeah, and how, you know, this idea of the deep voice and this, um, I don't know, an image of masculinity that in some ways actually sounds familiar from a sense of, you know, maybe in the modern industrial West, this idea, again, of a kind of muscly or confident, uh, yeah, like low voice, good hair, you know. And I'm curious, you know, is that <laughs> is that also, could it, could it, is it fair to say that might also be a, a, an image of masculinity devised by colonization? Like, is that what, say, your people would have understood an ideal masculine to be back before colonization? Or is that part of the imposition, this idea, you know, of what they should be? I think it's a complex story. I don't want to, I don't want to um, create an easy villain here, which mm-hmm. would be the easy and convenient thing to do. Um, but I think it's noteworthy um, that some of the tricksters and gods and goddesses that are part of the pantheon that feel archetypal and primal and primordial, you know, um, seem to defeat or disturb those binaries that seem that felt very Eurocentric, especially in those transatlantic arrivals. Um, mm. um, they um, issue, for instance, who is the god? Well, I don't. It's always violent to speak about issue or to speak of issue because issue, um, he he disturbs the speaking of him <laughs> or her mm-hmm. or it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, there is something that does not want to be conceptualized easily. Issue. It is said of he. He said. I mean, it is said that issue has both a vagina and a penis. Um, at the same time, and this was prior to Eurocentric uh, encounters or interruptions, um, it, th- th- there seems to be this notion that the world is far more promiscuous, far more fluid than than a single Jungian um, stabilized category of the masculine or feminine would be. And I'm seeing the toxic effects of that, of, you know, s- of delimiting the masculine from the feminine. Most importantly in India, where, I'm, where I live right now, which is my new home, when it is streamed into the public consciousness that boys don't cry, it, it literally is a thing here. Mm. Um, when men beat up their wives and it, there's this um, almost over-sexualized, you know, terrain where they have to divide how people seat on trains that men seat, uh, seat on this co- corner and women sit on this corner. And, and then when they come together, men usually touch the women in unsavory ways. They just touch them. Um, oh. and, and de- derive some sense of pleasure from, from that. And, and, and if they resist, they just flare up and become really angry. And so you have all these constant reports. They're not even new anymore of men beating up women and so much so that the government had to release public announcements to say boys also cry, you know, that it's, it's, it boys can cry. So I'm, I am of course taking this as a date as data as a gift, um, in meeting my own son who is named after my father, you know, ironically, Mm. um, and expectedly as well. Um, I'm, I'm learning to say, you know, to people that he can cry as well. That's a gift. Yeah. 
Hmm. I mean, there's so many threads that I, I want to yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dash off down. But um, one thing that strikes me about your work is it, it defies prescriptive answers. Yeah. <laughs> as, uh, you know, because I really see it as um, a great capacity to wonder. Uh-huh. You know, to wonder differently about things. And right. I will say that um, you may or may not know, I've spent many years with uh, another teacher, Stephen Jenkinson. Yes. Uh, yeah, who who also, I, I believe, has really, um, he, he displays a, such an achieved capacity to wonder that, you know, is often infuriating to those that really want that, okay, so what do we do about it? Kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. answers. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so one of the things I really would love to talk about in this conversation is around the subject of masculinity uh-huh. but perhaps to bring your great capacity to wonder about yeah. this you know this subject this this happening because i think that there's something that you know is is largely absent from the cultural conversation around masculinity maybe in the same way that you know you've spoken about climate change or you know activism that there's something around i believe masculinity which still is is part of the you know constructs of masculinity like it hasn't stepped outside of it to be able to you know really mm. invite different questions or invite different perspectives and so that's i guess what my my mm. curiosity is with you is you know what what could we wonder about masculinity that is not you know being wondered about mm. well thank you for that very beautiful description or non-description <laughs> of mm. of what you might term my work People ask me the same thing. I respond by saying I'm very confused, and and it's a gift to be confused. Um, uh, I have, I have apart from a doctorate, which doesn't mean um, much these days. Uh, um, I I take it as as a as a gift. Uh, yeah, I think that's the word there. As a gift to be wounded, to be open. Um, and and maybe that speaks to what we're trying to invite here to call the Wumple together down the street um, to explore what masculinity might help us uh, read through our the issues of our times. Well, one thing that has been paramount or sticking with me is the notion of justice you know, occurring in my dreams and haunting my imaginations is is how justice could often get in the way of transformation. Hmm. Um, uh, that the the very notion of justice is uh, the way we speak about it, the way we've been inspired to speak about it as citizens gestating in modern projects is as this transcendental or transcendent, not transcendental, transcendent ideal, like something outside the fray, something outside the messy um, con- the messy materiality of the world. There is this um, extra planetary ideal, if you will, uh, called justice. And our work is to reach towards it. And, and so when we speak about climate justice and racial justice and environmental justice and whatever forms of justices we gather around, there's this notion that it's already made, it's out there, it's just a product waiting to be discovered. Um, and, and I find that um, this you know, discovery, arrival, um, closure, 
they seem like very masculine ideals. Like it's mm. this, it's this will or imperative to close up the threadbare areas, to make tidy, to put together seamlessly, instead of to open up, instead of a gushing menstrual wound, a wound dehiscence that is always alive to what is becoming. So it's like being um, that pathologizes becoming. And so justice seems like this very, um, it's this anticipatory assumption that hides and lurks in our imaginations about how the world ought to be, the oughtness of things. Um, and sometimes that gets in the way of the kinds of movements and the kinds of, you know, um, a friend of mine says that I vogue sometimes <laughs> and I do it. <laughs> I never knew the name. I never knew what voguing was, but, 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 but the idea that I can move my body in ways that are probably, um, uh, perverse to a sterile notion of masculinity. It seems, seems generous and, and beautiful and a gift. Um, so yeah, closure, arrival, uh, foreclosure, uh, rapture. I, I, I'm really intent on exploring, uh, descent and rupture these days, not as the other of the masculine, but as a making forth of the masculine, as the masculine is always yet to come for me. Like the meaning of the masculine isn't there already. It's, it's diffracted. It's postponed indefinitely. Um, and, and so we are, in, it seems like when I say that fatherhood is a community, it literally means that the meaning isn't there like an orb, you know, shining outside of uh, the sweltering heat or compost heap of, of bodies mangled into bodies. It's, it's being made in the moment. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll stop, mm -hmm. there for, <laughs> stop there for now. Yeah, I love that image that, that I do think that there's a... Um, almost like a, a construct or a maybe an intellectual um, rational construct of this idea that there is this yeah. thing yeah. You know, that we're striving towards and and whether it's related to this idea of truth right which I yeah. think you spoke about in the in the Christian understanding that the you know the truth is is like this floating orb or this thing that you know can be approached as um, yeah. somehow outside of the messiness of of becoming um, yeah. and I feel like perhaps there's similar, constructs that can happen with this idea of masculinity um especially when there's something that is is sort of constellated and labeled uh, currently around this idea of toxic masculinity mm -hmm. right which which i think can be really helpful in a sense of identifying again certain behaviors or certain trespasses certain entitlements right that that um are certainly you know past due to be composted um, mm -hmm. and yet mm -hmm. at the same time it feels like there's this kind of therefore you know, here's the idolized masculinity that we're actually now all meant to aim mm -hmm. at, um, a sort of universal nobility of, of, of the masculine. And, and again, that's what I wonder about, um, because I feel like you're pointing towards something else, like a, a certain way of, a, of, of, of orienting, but never um, landing, you know, on the thing that we're supposed to get to. Right. Um, and I, and I'd approach responding to that in this way that I feel, let, let me use the lenses of a father or a father in the making to, uh, respond to this, um, that I think fatherhood masculinity, uh, is a crossroads event 
except in modernity, it's treated as a highway road rage, <laughs> uh, <laughs> speedster stuff. Um, I, I feel it's a crossroads event. I, I feel it's a meeting of bodies, um, something deeper than just a, an intersection. I think it's a diffraction. Um, and in that sense, uh, I've come to, I've come to this uncomfortable, I call it a realization just for conversational purposes. Uh, I don't want to treat any of anything I say as some kind of revelational dispatch from uh, some outside <laughs> realm to my head, you know, like revelatory stuff. Um, but let's go with realization. So I've come with to the uncomfortable realization that fathering is also the transmission of trauma. Uh, it, it, you know, and that seems nothing new, but uh, I mean, I mean it in, in more ways than just, um, we are inadvertently, um, gifting our children, our own shadows, our own toxicities in microbial ways, in, in bacterial form, in intergenerational lingering, um, behavioral modes and strategies of survival that have been encoded in our DNA or in, encoded in the flesh or encoded in ecology, um, or food types or fecal patterns. <laughs> um, uh, we, we gift shadows to, to the world. We gift shadows to our children. But, but I want to notice another way I'm saying this, that it, I don't just mean um, we inadvertently give it. I, I feel that the task of fathering is to give, <laughs> is to come to a place of giving, you know, children, Intent with uh, intent. I rarely use the word intention, but intentionally come to a place of saying, "This is a wound. Take it. I will stab this part of you so that you never are complete, um, so that you're 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 never full or whole." Can I tell you a brief story? Maybe that could, that Please. could illustrate this. I wrote a story once about a father. Um, when this started to come to me, a, a father in the village uh, writing to his son in Lagos, the city, um, saying, I'm about to die, so I think we should just meet each other again for the last time. And the son leaves his work in the city, travels all the way to the village, as you would do in my culture, and, and they take on a project together. Let's build a house, a mud hut. And, um, and they start to build this hut together. Um, along the way, the man becomes, the old man becomes too weak to continue and he retires to his, to his bed while the son does the good son's work of completing the task. He builds, uh, puts the thatch roof, sweeps the compound. The house is done. He rushes with gusto to his father's bedside and he says, father, I have completed the work and, um, just wanted you to know that. And the father said, are you sure it's complete? And the boy says, yes, it is complete. And with, with surprising strength, the father jumps up from the bed, takes a mallet from under his bed or a hammer, and then walks in his old man's strength to this house, inspects the walls, looks around while the son is wondering what's happening to my old man. And then he breaks a hole into the wall. Just one with one mighty swing breaks a hole into the wall. And the son is like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Um, and the old man said, you see what just happened now um, is 
now our neighbors will pass by, you know, and they will point to the hole in this one. They will say, what happened there? And they will come around and they will greet you. And they'll ask you your name and you'll tell them your name and you'll ask for their name and you, and, and they will tell you their names and you would invite them for tea or for, uh, or for pounded yam and egusi soup. And then you'll become neighbors. And the son says, where is this going? And he says, you're not complete until you're wounded in some way. That completion is a myth, you know, is this illusion or ruse of modernity. Um, until you find a place where you're wounded, community is not possible. Um, mm. And and so to notice masculinity as community is not to fall for me into this binarization of toxic versus non-toxic um, masculinity. Maybe toxic masculinity is masculinity that has not learned to meet its trauma, has not mm. learned to meet its own monsters. The, monst the, the monstrosities that, that is always part of our being. You know, most, you know, most of the circles that we're part of, Ian, brother, is they, there is a tendency to purify concepts, you know, of their material embellishments to, to rush into a zone or a domain, a fundamentalist zone or a domain where everything is pure, harmonious, um, right. And that's why we, tend to speak of consciousness all the time. It's because the material is too uncomfortable. But I think masculinity needs bodies to be, ma to, to be itself. Fathering is literally a vocation of bodies, meeting bodies. Um, so I'm, I'm hesitant to remove the material from this spilling of bodies into one another. And in the spilling forth of bodies, we have to learn, I, I think, to come to see that maybe maybe how we make differences, maybe how we come to see justice, maybe how we tend to see or come to see healing and well-being is always a vocation of monstrosities and, and, and masculinities as intentional monstrosity. <laughs> mm. <laughs> wow. I'm really curious about this thread of, of you know, meeting the monsters, the monstrosities of masculinity or, or yeah. maybe the willingness to meet them and this relationship between the wound or, or the sense that, um, you know, a question that's come up in the school, um, this is with uh, Stephen Jenkinson again, was yeah. this thread around this or this question, what monsters a monster, mm. you know, meaning what, what, it, what is the, I don't know, maybe the conditions or the, the monstering, or maybe you could say who monsters, the monster is mm. it the monster you know that monsters itself or is it the way in which you know we we banish or that we outcast or we pretend you know what's what's yeah. not part of us is what monsters yeah. the monster and i hear yeah. a little bit in you know what you're sharing there that the sense that there's perhaps there's some kind of wound or some kind of um um yeah like tenderness or something that wants to be given the light of visibility or to be seen you know and in its in its absence is when the monsters you know roam free right um i like the question who monsters <laughs> who monsters the monster um i think i think the monster resists articulation um it resists intelligibility that's what makes it monstrous what the monster wants to do is to help you attend to your own seams and sutures and fractures and ruptures. 
for you to also notice that you're not as well put together as you think you are. You're not all that, you know, and, <laughs> and, and that has been the gift of the monster to the city. You know, the, the, the city becomes this, uh, this externalization of the monster and the monster becomes the externalization of the city. Um, but in, in a way, they are always entangled with one another. They are always uh, part of one another. There, there's this beautiful speaking to your, you know, to your question or to the sentiment you're expressing there. Um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. You probably, you know, I don't know if you. I know a little. I mean, I, I certainly know the Disney version. But, uh. <laughs> yes, I'm speaking about the Disney, <laughs> Disney okay. version, uh, not not uh, Victor Hugo. Um, the Disney version is the. Uh, is the one that I grew up with, um, which is a very powerful filmic um, gift. It has a question, I think. What, what's the character? I forget his name. Quasimodo? A, no, not Quasimodo. Um, oh. the, he's, he's one of the gypsies, and he sings, he sings the first scenes of the movie, Into Being. Um, and, and he's also the outro. And if he asks a question, you know, in the beginning and I think the end, who makes, who makes the monster and who makes the man? Or who is the monster and who is the man? Uh, who is the monster and who is the man? You know, just, <laughs> and, and that's a beautiful riddle. And I think St- St- Stephen Jenkinson's question about who monsters the monster is, is heard in that. Um, for, for me, I can, speaking from my culture and the cultural wealth that I'm now decolonizing myself into and through uh, and with, um, I, um, I'm learning to appreciate, I'm learning to see the monster as, as, you know, not a vile thing, not an evil thing that is outside. I'm learning to also see our performances of maleness or masculinity as an imperative of our time, you know, that, that it hasn't always been the case. It certainly wasn't the case in our societies um, prior to colonial interruptions. But over time, we, we perform this imperative that we ought to be in a certain way. We ought to be clean and tidy and we, we ought to do the um, anthropological task of pushing away you know, the wild things to the wild places to protect those that are around us. Uh, so that it, in a sense, our own colonial learnings from that as people from the global South is that you have to hustle to be a man. You have to, you have to be a man to be a man. It's a man's world, <laughs> you know? Um, and that man's world is devoid of gift is, is de- devoid of sharing it, it's completely warped by notions of property, by notions of ownership, by notions of independence, by notions of uh, uh, secularity as being the pathological twin of, of sin and sinfulness and righteousness. Uh, so, so for me, um, maybe let me bring this home. Let me tidy this up. Is that masculinity for me is seen through the eyes of, the monster, the gift of the monster here is for us to see masculinity as a strategy, not as a thing, not as a an object, not as an essence, not as an archetype even, but as a bodily, corporeal, 
transcorporeal strategy, intergenerational strategy that is always um, and has always involved post-human processes. Yeah. Wow. I just left a, an open end there to see the yeah. curve, <laughs> curveball to see if you jump mm. on that. <laughs> well, I'm still with that masculinity as a strategy. Right. Whoa. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, hearing what you said about uh, almost like seeing through the eyes of that kind of masculinity, the one that looks on the world as, you know, basically competition and devoid of gift and yeah. needing to hustle. I mean, hearing you say that too, it just makes me, I feel sadness welling up in me, you yeah. know, like this, yeah. this feeling of, of um, such a, uh, I don't know, life devoid, you know, um, uh, just burden that, that, that yeah. is entrusted to, to men to participate in yeah. and, and, in, and to enact in the willingness to go along with it. Um, and so I, I just, I'm, I'm recognizing my own sadness in that and, you know, the places mm -hmm. too, in which, yeah, I feel almost like internally, uh, banished from the, the rest of those places in myself, you know, the, the tenderness, mm -hmm. the, the one that wants to give, um, you know, that, that deeper place of connectivity to the vital materiality of life and right. how, and how deep that goes actually, you know, for me, who's grown up in, you know, the Western culture. Um, right. and, and that is largely the water that so many of us men are swimming in. Right. You, you know, in, in cultures in South Africa, in Africa, and I'm bringing in a lot of African epistemologies here. Yeah, please do. Um, that to become a man is to be wounded you know, and is to be, is for something to be taken out of you. Um, and, and I feel the sense of sadness that you feel too, because I look back on the, on the day that I turned 18 and it was a birthday cake. My father had been dead three years. My father died when I was 15 and it was a birthday cake and happy birthday to you. And, you know, taking on the academic the loneliness and the solitude of the academic public intellectual life teaching in university. Um, I started to learn about deeply about my own cultures, you know, the cultures that are, have been the condition of the one that I call my own and how, for instance, in the Southern part of Africa, or even in some parts of Nigeria um, or West Africa, a young boy would leave the village, would embark, would be exiled you know, and his task would be to kill a lion, to bring back something that is impossible back into the community. And so it's like ascending forth. Um, modernity is when that kid who is supposed to be received by community has no one to welcome him, him home. It's like perpetual exile. There's no reception. There's no rite of passage. There's no hugging, there's no patting on the back. It's literally perpetual exile. So that when I hear you speak about the sadness of, of being banished, you know, it's like there's no home to return to. There, uh, you're banished not only from home and community, you're banished from being able to hold hands with another person without being pathologized as, oh, he's just homosexual or he's less of a man than he should, than he really is. You're banished from your emotions. You're banished. You're banished from, you're banished from cosmic 
uh, duties that are pressed upon you by ancestors uh, because because there's no one to receive you. There's no home to return to. There's no one to scar your skin. Uh, the Yoruba people employ um, some form of facial scarification. Um, uh, in some part of Abelkuta, where which is not part of the night, not the part that I'm from, but it's also a Yoruba community. Um, they would mark, the men would mark the corners of their mouth with three slits. Um, and that is to to say that they're children of Yemoja, who is the mother of children who are fish. Uh, her name literally mean, means the mother of children who are fish. Um, the men identify with this maternal um, instinct, this geological mythopoetic imperative that is Yemoja, um, by marking their skins, by cutting out of their flesh. Um, this masculinity is cutting yourself open as wounding yourself is entirely missing in, in an epistemology that encourages you to put yourself together. That is, that is what I was trained to do as a psychologist, to tell men to put themselves together. You're a man. It's literally what we're trained. You're a man. You're a man. Put yourself together. Yeah. Wow. You know, I'm really touched by that, um, that phrase you offered this idea of perpetual exile yeah. and how, how, you know, I actually, as I really like let that land, even like tears came to my eyes that, yeah. you know, something in this idea or this um, strategy of masculinity uh, as it is performed by, by many who have been, I mean, maybe l broadly saying banished and innerly exiled from that sense of home that 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 kind of you know earlier in this conversation i was even wondering too like what is the wound of masculinity like this kind of masculinity what is the wound yeah. of it and yeah. and what comes to me now is this sense that you know we have on mass this kind of mania for doing you know constantly and in a culture and a civilization that's like constantly you know just on go all the time i mean up until mm -hmm. like probably this moment, you know, with COVID and the rest. Yeah. But it's like, what, what animates the mania to just keep doing and doing and doing um, at the expense, of course, of everything else. And what comes to me is this sense that, you know, if masculinity so often as it's um, understood to be bound to doing and achievement, that I feel like there's a wound in there below, which is almost like, maybe if I do enough, I can come home. Maybe if I maybe if I do enough, I can come home. But there's yeah. never enough, you know. In that in that whole in that whole construct, you'll never do enough yeah. to be allowed to come yeah. home. And like for me, that there's something that detonates me in that of that that recognition that that that's the yeah. the, the yeah the tender wound below, you know this this mania to achieve all the time. It's actually this deep desire to come home and not being allowed to. It, it it's like completion searching for its wound. Mm. Right. It's 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 like it's like this vocation of arrival, searching for departure. You know, you've been you've been exiled, and then you want to be received. And you might even create the, you might even perform. You know, reception. You might create. You might hire actors. You might you might put all the props together to to give you a sense of of arrival, of homeliness, if you will. Um, but being at home is to be wounded, is to be wounded again and again. It, being at home is a cartographical project of finding ourselves and remaking ourselves. It's not just a, 
it's not just occupying space, you know, it's making space. Space is never just occupied. Place is a, is a vocation. Places are not born, they're made, right? And, and, and so the, the, the modern masculine, we do harm to it by making it vil- villainous, by pathologizing it, by saying it's evil, we need to get rid of it. You know, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like what I say. A box is think all day about how to think outside the box, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you know, they're constantly, um, thinking about how to, how to subvert their own selves. Um, this paradigm of completion is this strategy that is not, um, traced out into some evil thing that just popped out into the world, you know, um, that has no root or pedigree. Um, I, I think, I think that if you if you touch the tentacularities of modern masculinity, you will you will find strategies. You will find prayers. You will find a yearning to be seen, to be heard. Um, America is such a such a glorified trope ground for the modern masculine. The huge GM cars, the bulking and hawking models of masculinity there and the outsized notion of empire and exclusivism you know it's us it's 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 about us uh we save humanity we will you know and trump being a model of that i think it just needs a wound um and it's not a wound that we can inflict on ourselves and this is the reason why i say masculinity is an earth vocation it's an ecological project it's not just a human project um in a sense, a virus could be part of what it means to be masculine. It could render the cot that helps us meet our shadows and might uh-huh. instigate the kinds of cartographical projects we need to make sanctuary, to make sanctuary, to, to melt, if you will. You know, I'm struck by, you know, you brought up Trump there for a moment and how, um, you know, very much that model of, of masculinity and leadership as well is really, you yeah. know, don't let him see you sweat. You know, don't let him see any sense of doubt, any sense of wound, and it and in don't some wear ways, a mask. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and there's something you know. It's easy to, of course, demonize Trump or like that kind of leader, and yet at the same yeah, time, yeah. it seems like they they directly correspond to a populace that actually demands that of their uh-huh. leadership, right? And so uh-huh. I guess I'm I'm wondering this question about like how do how do we make a place for the wound to show up? Like, how do we, you know, how do we make, a, you know, is it a question of safety? How do we make, I don't want to say safe space, because that's a problematic phrase often, but, yeah. you know, how do yeah. we, how do we make a place for the wound to be seen and to be received with masculinity? Uh, so that is a question that I'm constantly struck, wounded, flawed by. From one, I have no easy answer to that, from, to be deeply honest with you. Um, I... I'm doing a lot of work around centering this methodology or invitation that I call making sanctuary, um, which is part of a larger project that I call post-activism, which is also part of a larger project that I call weird politics. <laughs> <laughs> and, and none of it, none of what I've mentioned are humanistic. Um, they, they are not products of human ingenuity. They're not things, they're not necessarily things that we are to do right? Like, oh, this is what you do now. So just do A, B, C, and you're it. You know, you're woke. 
you're now this <laughs> you're now good you're now true um mm. um it's not it's it it is and it's it's such a difficult thing to even mention to my to my own brothers in the african american community and sisters when i say that decolonization isn't a isn't human work decolonization isn't our work right it we can only show up modestly and partially like um nothing that is real shows up completely everything shows up in part that's because an aspect of being or becoming is always the deterritorialization of itself the postponement of itself the virtualization of itself so we show up locally and virtually we're constantly streaming we're constantly falling apart and i'm i'm not speaking in metaphors i'm speaking about in biological terms where we're relinqu- we're letting go of millions of cells you know every time so that we're never really in place we're 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 never statutory or static um and and this this invites a very very tense or humble response to your question what do we do then how do we make space i think the creativity for what my generic response would be i think the creativity for what might want to happen next are instigated by the moment like the imagination of what to do is not uh it's not sourced from human beings it's it's a it's a product of a morphogenetic field if you will you know the field creates its own dynamics um right now there are imaginations we're having in this moment being part of the covid-19 phenomenon that would have been impossible in pre-pandemic states um mm. there there are dreams you might be having right now that are that are instigations to explore and experiment with the next ideas uh the next threads or strands or embroidery marks that we can make on the fabric of masculinity that were not possible or could not have been possible if some infinitesimal visitor that we rudely call a virus did not penetrate and disturb our economies um so the spirituality of this moment the spirituality the polit- the politics of the, the microbial activisms of this time you know will create the gift will create the moment will create the new kinds of questions that we can ask the question you've just asked brother is is not uh an in mckenzie you know uh thing it is ancestry it is community it is so many things that came together probably the cereal you ate this morning or or <laughs> i don't know it, it, that made this that question possible i see constellations and worlds where others might see a reductionistic essence you know uh, you want to tease things apart and say there's there there's a community here where you only see an an identity or a thing but with my invitation to making sanctuary I'm working with others to develop this invitation uh that is a non-proselytizing invitation by the way and it's not supposed to be universal to work everywhere I don't deal with universals um uh, that are not already contingent um the the invitation here would be to to find places where we can map and mark out trauma um to to and by trauma I mean the cuts that have been made to define the image of god that's another name that i give the masculine the image of god you know the the selfie 
<laughs> that has that has this image of the dominant uh, in its in its pose, in its center, in its heart. Um, is there a way we can we can ask questions together to to build what I call minoritarian assemblages? That is a, an an effort not to bring people to our place of power, but an effort to go to other places of power to kind of descent to rather to descend to the depths, you know, to, to ask questions of furniture, to, which is the reason why I call this weird politics, to, to, to ask questions of our serial, to share in a fugitive network, um, questions, recipes for meeting the world in new ways. And I feel in doing this, we might come to exquisite new visions of masculinity that are not possible just by putting together new archetypes, you know, and just saying this is toxic and this is non-toxic. This is a program for you to develop non-toxic masculinity. If you go through my course, at the end of this course, you will have a halo on your head. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if there are places outside of holiness, outside of the holy, righteous notions of non-toxic masculinity that are inviting us maybe a disruption of the archetype, maybe a shedding of the notion of hu humanity altogether. Hmm. Woo. <laughs> wow. Let me just sit with that for a second. Okay. <laughs> Hearing you speak, I'm really struck by this. I mean, at least what I've come to understand is as what feels like a quality of emergence, you know, the yeah. phenomenon of emergence of, yeah. and I know you're, you're, um, deeply in uh, or part of the collaborations or co-founders of this Emergence Network um, yes. as well. Yeah, and, and so just a little sidebar as well. You know, for me, since um, probably 2011, actually during Occupy days, um, I, I was working on a film with a fellow named Belko Ripper, uh, and I, I was helping co-produce that film. And, and around that time, I really started to tune into what felt like this, I don't know, this rising awareness around this, this quality, this phenomenon of emergence. Um, in, in lots of different spheres. And I began to start to see how it, it interacted with or showed up within, in this case, kind of activist um, dimensions, you know, in, in gatherings. And then, of course, when both of us, I think we met for the first time at the 2014 uh, yeah. New Story Summit, you know, in, yeah, in Finhorn yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, in Finhorn, yeah. Yeah, and how, um, you know, what happened with Charles Eisenstein and, and um, I think Jody Evans and another where they, you know, yeah. they, the trickster showed up and they reformed, uh, you know, the schedule for the day and the chaos uh -huh. that ensued. And also that really beautiful possibility of, you know, something being different, of, of something yeah. new showing up. And, you know, there's lots that could be said on that. But I want to um, also, I think, draw a line to what you were just sharing. For me, um, I, I hear that there's this ability or possibility of, meeting the question of uh, like what is masculinity becoming mm -hmm. to be able to meet it with a kind of yeah a, par a partnership with emergence you know instead of a kind of prescriptive good let's go through the program and and kind of arrive at what we've already decided is you know quote good masculinity yeah mm. that there's something in that yeah the kernel of what you're saying too which for me is very exciting right because mm. i do i do think so much of the kind of response to even you know, toxic masculinity or men's work now does have a kind of a, a quality of a sort of, yeah, we've already got it and now we walk you through it, you know? And, yeah. and yet yeah. there's something, that's what I feel is missing, that there's a kind of radical uh, intelligence that also yeah. wants to show up, you know, in this yes. conversation, in meeting this moment. And, and I love the way that you brought 
that that awareness um, to begin to kind of open up. I guess to me, this is what's been missing too with masculinity: this this capacity to see it also as an unfolding, also as many as many things. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful the way you put that. Yeah, masculinity as an unfolding and as emergent and non-static. Yeah. Um, this is the reason why I emphasize fugitivity, you know, instead of destinations and not that I'm against destinations, not that I'm against resolutions and solutions or manifestos and blueprints, but I feel that the part of the creativities of the Anthropocene is to be suspicious of, you know, of our claims to agency, of our claims to unilateral agency. So I've been part of many, many efforts to chart, you know, to describe the next few years. You know, I even got invited to this documentary, which is no longer in existence because I wrote a very, <laughs> and he's now my brother and dear brother and strong collaborator. Um, mm. But he wanted to, me to speak about the year 2030 and how the world will look like. And I understand that, but I came from a very strong place in noticing that there are people like me who do not have the luxury of envisioning a future that do not, you know, how futurists plan and think about what's your five-year plan or 10-year plan, or this is a trending uh, thing. And this is our analysis for the next hundred years and stuff like that. Without noticing that, to be able to do that, to to make those is, is itself privilege, and that there are people around the world that they're they're stuck in the indeterminacy of things. They have no notions of grit or or plausibility, you know, leading the way as it would do to come to the hero's aid, like that ex machina um, construct to pluck you out of trouble you know, with your human rights or your Karenism. <laughs> I just created the word. <laughs> I, um, forgive me. Um, to just pluck you out, pluck you out and, and help you see the manager. You know, there are some people that do not have access to the managers and cannot call upon the manager. Um, where was I going with this? So I speak about, I speak about fugitivity to signal a modest recognition that we are part of the knowledge systems. Like, like we're, when you're part of the picture, it's difficult to see the frame. You know, we're not outside of the frame looking on the picture and then devising a new portrait. We are part of the portrait. Uh, knowledge and knowing is always made by navigating through the world. It's not, not prior to it or transcendent hovering over it. So that in a sense, sometimes or most times, and I know this as a recipient of Western benevolence, um, sometimes we will inadvertently repeat the same dynamics that we're trying to escape, which is the reason why I formulated the very large constellational feud of post-activism, that, you know, our imaginations of the future are, are often instigations of the present, wanting to reinforce itself. Um, so fugitivity is not a description of a, a new future. It's a stain with the trouble of a curdling present. 
Um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's something that resists description, but it's an, it's not even escape because escape sometimes reinforces the plantation. Um, it's exile. It's a different form of, it's an inversion. It's an inflection of the powers that be. And the powers that be here are the dominant modern masculine in its vision of the next, in its colonization of the next, in its wanting to transfer its power to the future by determining what the future will look like for peoples across the world, and in its banishment of hopelessness and saying, you know, hope is the only thing, it's the central thing. I imagine and recall Winston Churchill, not that I was there, but Winston <laughs> Churchill saying, never, 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 in its jowling Britishness, never give up, you know. Um, and I wonder, I really wonder if that invitation, that imperative to never give up is keeping us from and excluding us from swimming in waters or in colors that we do not know how to describe right now. Yeah, something just came to mind about, you know, the way India, where I'm at, of course, treats the, the masculine as just one of the number, which in a postmodern sense will give any, any postmodern philosopher pride. You know, it's not, there's a masculine, there's a feminine, but there's, there's a transgender, there's, what, 16 gender types or something. Um, there are many different ones. And, Amazing. Um, but I'm not speaking about the proliferation of genders. I'm, uh, postmodernity just proliferates as a response to modernity. It proliferates the, <laughs> the incarceration. It creates more grids in order to leave behind the one grid that modernity has named for itself. It proliferates the same problem. And it's all plantation work. And I wonder if there's I wonder if there's something we don't know how to describe it, which is the reason why I keep myself perpetually confused. Um, we, we, what I think we need to do is, is to stay with the trouble. And this is Donna Haraway's phrasing, stay with the trouble. The kid that has been perpetually exiled, what does that kid do to find home? Um, maybe not to rush down the highway, maybe not to ru rush down the highway, um, because the highway wants you to rush down its body. The highway wants you to speed up, to accelerate, to keep on scrambling about looking for your people. Maybe we should stop trying to outpace the highway. Maybe there is a place of sitting down and being met perchance, possibly by wiser beings but we'll never know until we slow down. Mm. Thank you, brother. Thank, thank you, brother. I think we're getting close to uh, closing this conversation this evening. Wow. And I know, I can't believe it. <laughs> um, I mean, I would love to do round two uh, at some point <laughs> yeah, in the future. Yeah, we should. We should. <laughs> um, but I'd love to end uh, this conversation with um, maybe bringing it back again to, to fatherhood and yeah. You know, you left us with this sense of slowing down. And I wonder, again, at the risk of being prescriptive, but yeah. what might you offer fathers in this time that may, I don't know, invite them to to approach differently or to, to wonder differently around how to be 
with this time, with their children in particular? My wife and I are learning to see Alethea, our daughter, as an elder. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, and it's not a thing of striving, or, but we also have been the recipients of particular ways of seeing that we don't we find really problematic. Um, but we are performing a way of parenting that my wife calls transparenting. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that is about noticing that children are in many senses, in the Yoruba sense of the word, are our elders, you know. Uh, there is this epistemology, this in Yoruba epistemology thinks of children as not just coming into the world, but coming out of the ground, like ancestors returning. So you have names like Yewande, Babatunde. Babatunde means the Baba has returned. Otunde, Babatunde, Yewande, that Iyewa, our mother has come back again. You know, it's, it, and it's not just reincarnation. It's, um, like a soul just being transplanted into another. It's, it's, um, it's, it's like we're, we're part of ecology and the, and, and the world itself in his wisdom regurgitates or no, regurgitates not, a belches forth another body. And we, I, I don't even think we live, we live true to those, to the nuances of that, um, of, of that myth. We, we don't, we don't, Yoruba people, at least the people that I grew up with, didn't quite swim in those waters. We, we, we had our bath in Christological streams, you know, mm -hmm. that, that think of children as blank slates and stuff. But especially in these times with the virus at large, the virus at large, such a rude thing to say, with, with viruses everywhere and have always been everywhere. Um, I think we're, we're looking at an insurgency of the invisible. The things that have been invisibilized are now being noticed, including our children. We gave them up to schools. Now our children are now sitting with us in the awkward. Um, they're, they're resisting forward movement and insisting we stay with, with the awkward. Hmm. Um, sitting with the awkward is probably my deepest definition of fatherhood at this point in time. <laughs> this is where I'm coming to then. That, that staying with the awkward, staying with the idea that fatherhood is being remade and constantly being questioned. Um, my, my, my father's name, it, it'll be good to, to name him since we, we conjured and invoked him in this conversation. His name was Abayomi. Ignatius Akomalafe. And my son's name is Kea Abayomi too. So he, they share the same Abayomi. And Abayomi means um, uh, they thought they buried me, but they did not realize that I'm a seed. So it's this querying of power. It's this disturbing of surfaces. It's this turning inside out of things. In a sense, I think fathering is a middling concept just like I find myself in the middle of my father and my father and my son and my son. Um, I feel that I'm constantly being called to, to revisit, 
uh, my practices as a father, to practice meeting my children as elders, as philosophers, which is the reason why we haven't sent them to school, to, to do philosophy with them and to get into their program, not just impose our own projects and exercising and activities on them. Um, so it's really this fathering or fatherhood as not a reflexive concept, not something that just pushes back our images to us, but something that breaks us down to meet our children as compost heaps, hmm. uh, as thresholds, as liminal spaces. Um, and what that means will be different for people in different contexts. But for me, um, Alethea is now my mother. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll stop there. Mm, stay with the awkward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the beautiful yeah. invitation. And, and what may come from the willingness to stay with that. Yes, yes, mm. yes. Hmm. Well, I feel beyond grateful for <laughs> our, our time together. <laughs> Bye. I feel grateful for meeting your beard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a life of its own. It's a happening. <laughs> yes, I was in conversation most of the time with your beard. And then part... <laughs> And then 30% with you, yeah. <laughs> the mystery deepens. Well, I would yeah. uh, absolutely love to have a round two at some point. Of uh, course. Because I know, yeah, the cosmology of, of you know, your work and where you wonder is yeah. vast and deeply um, transfiguring in the, in the most potent way. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for wondering today on, on masculinity and um, during this time, yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.